Dilara Salahova, and this is the Sustain, Change and Grow podcast, your source of knowledge and inspiration for sustainable habits. To reach objectives of 1.52 degrees of global temperature rise, greenhouse gas emissions per person should drop to 2 tons by 2030. The current global average level is above 5 tons per capita, with very unequal contribution across countries and social groups. In Europe, average annual carbon emissions per person are around 12 tons, with richer people contributing significantly more. In the United States of America, average emissions per capita are even higher. Reducing individual emissions from 12 tons to 2 tons per year is not trivial. It will require significant reconsideration of our lifestyle, what we eat, how we travel, how we consume. Certainly, governments and businesses should play their role as about half of our emissions come from public services. However, every individual is still responsible for the other half. Most guests in my podcast make significant efforts to lead a more sustainable lifestyle and reduce their carbon emissions. But today's guest, Tom Gosling, really impressed me by his structural and methodical approach to achieve the goal of reducing his family's carbon footprint by 50% in 10 years. This goal is very ambitious, and I'm looking forward to discussing with Tom what approach he took and what challenges he faces on this journey. I hope listeners will get not only inspiration, but also very practical ideas on what they can do and what they should focus on primarily to reduce their own emissions. So, Tom Gosling has more than 20 years of experience in corporate governance and responsible business, including 15 years as a partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers. In 2020, Tom decided to pursue a portfolio career. Now he's an executive fellow at London Business School and the European Corporate Governance Institute where he works on issues related to corporate governance, responsible business and sustainable investing. Tom, a very warm welcome to the podcast. It's my great pleasure to have you. Adeliara, thank you very much. Thank you very much. So let's start from the very beginning of your personal net zero journey. Yeah. Early 2019, which is already four years from now, you signed a pledge to reduce the carbon footprint of your family by 50% by 2030. Mm. What was the trigger and motivation for this action? And what were your expectations about the journey at that moment? Yeah, so, I mean, prior to then, I'd always been somewhat environmentally conscious um, and in a sort of slightly haphazard way had, you know, tried to um, look at issues around my carbon footprint. But what's quite interesting to me in terms of like what drives change is that it was the Extinction Rebellion protests in 2019 that kind of just made me think a little bit harder about the issue. And, um, you know, you can argue whether or not you agree with the methods of organisations like Extinction Rebellion, but it, it's sort of interesting to me looking back that that was the trigger for me to take a closer look at it. And then I came across this pledge that was um, on, I think I linked to it from some sort of UN website or something. And um, the pledge, in essence, had um, three or four components. But it says, you know, figure out what your, your footprint is, um, take a pledge to reduce it by half as soon as you can, 
uh, and uh, also to talk about it um, as well. I mean, the pledge also had a thing about offsetting what you can't reduce, which maybe we'll come back to because I'm a bit skeptical mm-hmm. about that, actually. But, um, you know, talking about it as well. Um, and so that was why I also decided to start the blog on what I was doing, because the talk about it was 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 part of the pledge. What were my expectations at that time? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think um, I thought it would be probably quite challenging to do. Um, and um, but on the other hand, in my professional life, I'm also interested in areas around sustainability and climate change. So I also expected that I'd learn quite a lot about what some of the blockages might be, what some of the necessary policies might be. And actually, from that perspective, it's been enormously helpful. But it's been an interesting, uh, yeah, as you frighteningly point out, I'm already kind of almost halfway through uh, having to <laughs> the time frame that I'd set for having the footprint. And um, in some areas, it's worked quite well. In others, it's not so easy, which maybe we'll come on to. Yes, absolutely. So... What was your family's take? Uh, well, what, what a very interesting question, right? Because yeah, you have to kind of um, you have to kind of bring them with you, right? And yes. um, I, you know, and this is candidly one of the challenges. And so I've got three kids um, who are um, they range at the time I started it, they range from uh, ages, I guess, eleven, you know, to nineteen. They're obviously now three years older than that, um, and. Um, you know, on the one hand, they sort of like the idea of environmental sustainability, but kind of a little bit less so when it had, has consequences <laughs> on what you actually have to do. So, um, you know, it's uh, it, it's a continuing point of discussion from time to time. Let's put it like that. At the moment, we're in the middle of a heat pump installation and we have some nice hot water pipes running up the side of our stairs, which I have to say... Um, my wife hasn't yet learnt to love. Um, <laughs> we'll eventually cover them up, and it'll be okay. But um, yeah, I mean, there are there are. It's been interesting just trying to you know strike that balance because I think the other thing you know the the serious reality that that um, you know creates is that we all know that what we do individually is not going to change the world on climate. Right? Anything that we mm. do is a drop in the ocean, um, and so. It's slightly futile, uh, I think, to adopt an incredibly hair-shirted approach. And I mean, one of the things I want to say throughout this, you know, know, at the start of this podcast is that I, you know, live a very comfortable lifestyle and I'm in the far right-hand tail of the distribution of global carbon footprints. Mm -hmm. I mean, our family's footprint is about um, 12 tonnes Per head on average, pretty much in line with the European average. So I'm not wanting to claim any sort of virtue on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reality is, you know, to try and get down to sort of six or four or two or something, you know, even four and two, which is kind of what we need to get to, uh, just requires you to almost kind of check out of modern life to a large degree. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I decided pretty early on that I wasn't going to do that, right? And maybe that's kind of morally weak of me and I'm too attached to material comforts but I sort of decided from the outset that I was going to try to approach this as a sort of a sensible reduction strategy that yeah maybe required some sacrifices but would not require me to sort of completely change my way of living so that's why I called it a middle class approach to decarbonisation because it's not particularly radical uh, and is probably looking for the easy wins rather than the sort of really kind of tough 
um, consumption reductions that in reality we need to do in the West today if we wanted to get anywhere near two tons based on today's economic system. Yeah, but that's what I liked about your approach because I think, well, there are some people who are eager to do radical changes and who are capable, but the majority of the people won't do it. And so we need to find a way how we can bring the majority to reduce uh, by some amount the emissions rather than having very, very few people who would cut radically and live in the forest with no emissions whatsoever. Yeah, well, and I sort of had my sort of I've had my mini sort of democratic process within the family. Right. You know, and I sort of and, and, and I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, those of us that sort of spend a lot of time on this stuff have to remember is that, you know, not everybody does. Right. Mm-hmm. And and also, you know, levels, you know, people have day to day concerns in their life um, and people's level of understanding, you know, is quite low. So, I mean, you'll you know, you'll be well aware of all of this research that shows pretty consistently globally people you know a majority of people say they're concerned about climate change and then they get asked are you doing anything about climate change and most people say yes and then you ask them what they're doing and they say i recycle you know which is you know almost completely irrelevant to 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 climate change and so i think this you know for me actually the big challenge of where we are on climate change is finding politically achievable pathways to change because actually technologically we're not that far off being able to kind of do a lot of what we need to do a lot of the technologies are available today and we kind of know what we need to do but it's just quite difficult to you know to get people to um to do it so yeah i mean what i tried to do was do some stuff that other people in my sort of position could relate to and see as being feasible and you know going going to kind of live in you know some kind of self-managed you know sustainable community is not something that most people are going to do right so Mm. uh, and great good good for people who do that they they send a different type of signal I was trying to send a signal that was about well what could middle class people do um, Mm -hmm. to reduce their impact a bit so what is actually interesting and a bit surprising is what you say about your children because I hear let's say in my surrounding but very often it's children who bring this topic to their parents and they request, okay, let's cut on meat consumption, let's do this, let's do that. Uh, because they, well, they get this education from the school uh, and they're probably also more sensitive to these issues. But in your case, you kind of say you have to go through this process with your kids in order to pursue the path. Yeah, well, so here's the thing, right? So, I mean, people are complex and kids are complex, right? And um, everybody wants to have their cake and eat it. So it's definitely true that the awareness of climate change as an issue um, is is significant, right? And kids learn a lot about it at school. And, you know, they are, you know, they do demonstrate concern for it. Uh, but on the other hand, um, they regularly you know, buy from fast fashion providers. Um, They want to go to sunny places on holiday. Um, You know, they don't necessarily want to be vegetarian. They, you know, they go through phases where they might want to be vegetarian and phases when they don't. And so, you know, in my experience, kids are perfectly capable of holding two contradictory positions at the same time. Um, So, you know, and I think that there's a big difference between 
you know, and this is this actually is an, is, is an illustration, I think, of the big challenge around political change on climate. You know, it's one thing to say you're very concerned about climate and you want action to be taken. It's another thing to then take that action yourself <laughs> in a way that, you know, stops you doing something that you that you want to do. Yeah. But it's even not specific to the climate. It's so just specific to the people. Sure. Like uh, everybody wants to have a better health, but uh, then stop eating sugar, you know, do some more exercise. Yeah, absolutely. Like, <laughs> yeah, we absolutely. always say the same issue. Yeah, and, you know, and it does come, and, you know, and I will admit that there are certain areas where, you know, the retention. So one of the things that I looked to do was um, try and limit the amount that we fly um, in order to hit a, a a rolling kind of budget of a of a ton per head per year on 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 flights but then you know so we have some friends who are in a, in 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 the states they're doing a posting in washington dc for a few years and you know we are going to go out and see them next year and we'll probably go as a family and I suspect as a result of all of that, at some point, either next year or the year after, we will go over that um, that budget. And, you know, at that point, I mean, this is kind of where the rubber hits the road. And this is why I'm not claiming any kind of, you know, particular moral virtue in what I'm doing, right? Because my whole approach to this is incredibly compromised in many ways. You know, you then kind of face a choice, which is to say, well, you don't go, you don't take the opportunity to go and see these friends that are having um, this posting over there. If I put my foot down and said, we're not going, I'd have a big falling out with the whole of my family, you know? So, you know what? I'm not going to do that, right? I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, you know, balance those trade-offs. But on the other hand, you know, there are other decisions we've made where we've leaned towards, you know, finding somewhere we can get a train to or drive to. We, we, we fly less within the UK now. So, you know, I suppose... Uh, I, we haven't achieved everything that I might have aspired to achieve on flying. But on the other hand, we've achieved more than we would have achieved without making, you know, without making the setting the goal, if you like. Mm. Um, and it probably has made us a lot more thoughtful about whether actually there are other other alternatives. Yeah, absolutely. OK, so let's get to this. I guess the first biggest challenge that you faced is to compute the footprint. And actually, mm. to know the numbers. Yeah, and it's really hard to do that actually, because I mean, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, there are various footprint calculators out there that enable you to do it, but they all, almost all of them, have limitations um, because they assume, you know, very kind of standardized metrics. They often ignore the embedded carbon footprint in the provision of government services. So, you know, before we start, before we do anything, right, you know, we have this embedded footprint of, um, you know, a few tons per head just from the running of the government and the services that it provides to us. Um, and also they just take typical consumption patterns, which, um, you know, depending on where you are on the earnings scale, just, just may not be appropriate. So I found in the end that to get a realistic footprint i actually needed to to sort of dig into the background of some of these calculators and use the factors and and calculate my own footprint because the reality is i probably would have been um 
I would have underestimated my footprint probably by around 50% based on traditional calculators. And part of that is just based on consumption levels because, you know, there's a sort of, um, one of the sort of uncomfortable truths around carbon impact is that on average, roughly every 2,000 pounds you spend is a ton of carbon, right? I mean, obviously that varies enormously because that's not true if you're buying fine art and it's worse than that if you're flying. But, you know, if you if you look at a sort of typical kind of basket of goods and services that you could buy, there's a there's a very strong relationship between consumption and um, and carbon footprint. And so most online calculators don't really adjust for that to a terribly uh, meaningful um, degree. So, you know, by the time you've put all of that kind of in the mix, it gets, you know, and actually most carbon calculators don't take specific account of your own house's energy consumption, for example. Now, having said all of that, so I, I went through quite a lot of effort as, uh, you know, anyone who's got, got time to kill and read my blog will see, I went through quite a lot of effort to calculate the footprint in the first place. On the other hand, how necessary is that? Um, because, I mean, I found it sort of educational, but I guess directionally, the simple calculators could have told me where the big impacts were. And actually, for most people, regardless of how you calculate your footprint, the actions that you need to take to reduce it are the, are the same. For most people, it comes down to the same thing. The big contributors are around uh, how much you fly, how much you drive, what your diet is, and you know, how, much, how you heat your home, uh, and how much you consume. Right. And so for everybody, those are kind of the big the big buckets. So it's an interesting question around footprinting about how worth is it going to the lengths I went to to calculate it in the first place. I felt given that I'd set a specific goal, I wanted to get a decent handle on what my base was. And so what you're saying is that now once you have done it, so other people may not necessarily need to calculate their own footprint. They can use just the standard calculation to know in which, uh, let's say, big category they are, so and uh, know if they have uh, five tons per capita or twelve tons uh, per capita, and uh, and then they can use the the standard uh, actions to uh, reduce their carbon emissions. Yeah, I think so, and 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 I mean the reason I say that simply is that you know I, again we have to be. I mean, I'm a bit of a nerd, really, in many ways. So when I get when I get into something, I tend to get into it. So I was prepared to spend quite a lot of time trying to accurately estimate my footprint. And realistically, most people are not going to be prepared to spend that amount of time. So, you know, there are a couple of calculators that um, that I've pointed out that that I think are pretty good. Um, I mean, for me, I think the World Wildlife Foundation calculator is probably the best simple start point. Uh, I think that does at least attempt to capture most of the principal dimensions. I mean, some of the calculators really miss important dimensions. And so I think most people can just start getting a picture of it through one of those simple ones. Mm -hmm. So, but that was four years ago. Have things changed since then? Has it become simpler to follow your steps? I mean, there are some things that have turned out to be quite straightforward and some things that were more complicated than I thought they were going to be. I mean, probably the easiest one uh, and actually the one that, you know, the whole process has taught me much more about the role of the food system in carbon emissions. And, um, you know, depending on how you measure it, but, you know, the food system, global food systems, roughly a third of global carbon emissions once you in include land use changes as well. 
and um and actually it's a pretty big chunk of an individual's carbon footprint and for most people who are um not vegetarian uh you can actually cut that in half quite quickly by um firstly cutting out red meat and then you know eating much more plant-based food and it's one of the few areas where I think that, you know, there really is almost, as it were, a free lunch, you know, in climate change. Because mm -hmm. in lots of areas there are, you know, there are complicated second order effects and rebound effects and all of this kind of stuff. But actually, when it comes to changing diet, so we have consciously now, we, we eat much, much less red meat, very rarely, and we eat much, much more vegetarian food. Um, and actually, on the whole, feel better for it. Um, it's very delicious. It's perfectly possible to make delicious vegetarian food. I mean, if you're not used to doing it, it takes a bit of effort to figure out how to do it. Um, and, um, you know, so that one actually ended up being, that was kind of real, wow, that's really easy, right? And it sort of surprises me that we aren't doing a little bit more from a public education point of view on this point particularly given the potential health benefits. Um, you know, and you don't have to go extreme. You don't have to go vegan to make quite a big difference. So that one, I thought, yeah, that's that's actually um, relatively straightforward. One of the ones that... Just maybe uh, a, a, yeah. a comment on this. It's interesting. So you're saying that was really free lunch, uh, easy thing. But I think it's actually for many people, it's eating meat and all the dairy products, cheeses. Well, I, I live in France. Uh, mm. It's almost like religious or cultural thing. So uh, actually, sometimes I doubt that people are re uh, ready to take uh, this particular step. Mm. I, I mean, you, you make a great point, actually. I mean, um, yeah, when I said free lunch, I was kind of more talking about actually it's cost free to the individual. There are potentially health benefits and so on and so forth. But I absolutely accept that culturally. And, and I think this is why governments have been reluctant to do public health messaging around that issue, because it is for certain segments of the population, um, you know, real red button issue. And um, and there's always this concern about sort of nanny statism. Uh, and, I, and I think, you know, and it goes back to this point that when it comes to addressing climate change, when governments start doing stuff that affects people's lives, we've seen some very, very strong reactions against that, and particularly in France, um, we have, but, you know, kind of kind of everywhere. So I do, I do agree with you. I mean, I think it is, um, some of these things are sort of totemic um, cultural issues, and people think that, you know, climate change advocates are wanting to take away their steaks and their, and their cheese. I, I do agree with what you said earlier about the, uh, our individual actions being just a drop in the ocean. But I think that's where it comes. I mean, even if we're not perfect and we contribute to two tons and we are not going to live in the forest, uh, etc. But I think that's where it matters is that when everybody uh, becomes so aware of the climate change that they're ready to make certain changes in their behavior and yeah. then uh, whatever the governments have to do uh, at yeah. the public level, at the country level, that will be taken with the much more ease and acceptance. I completely agree with you. And, um, you know, because I think when when people sort of say, oh, personal action is irrelevant, that, that, that does ignore the political process. And um, one of the reasons why I quite liked the pledge and, you know, one of the reasons why I've devoted... Um, 
quite a lot of time to communicating about what I've been doing is that I think that talking about climate change is one of the most useful things that we can do as citizens, um, provided we do it in a sort of reasonable, balanced way. I mean, I'm not sure that, you know, forever in a Cassandra-like way, talking about impending doom is is particularly helpful. But I think, you know, in a constructive and accessible way, talking about how we're thinking about climate change and what we're doing is a really important part of how we can contribute as citizens to creating a political environment where governments can do what they need to do. Mm, absolutely. Okay, then please move to the next step. Yeah, I mean, next one. I mean, another one that's sort of really straightforward um, is flying. Um, so if you're a rich Westerner, you know, the chances are that flying is a, is a big chunk of your footprint. And, you know, this is, this is a really, this is one of these ones where the rubber hits the road, right? Because mm. it's lovely to do and you go to nice places and everyone likes going to nice places, but it's very difficult to shy away from the fact that it has a massive carbon impact um to do that and so you know this is where you face this dilemma about um you know how you know how severe is the hair shirt that you decide to um to put on and so the way i decided to think about it was um not to cut out flying completely um but to try and get my carbon footprint to be less excessive than it was in that regard relative to kind of societal norms. Um, because I think on a lot of this stuff, I mean, just the way we live, we it has a lot of carbon embedded in it. And, and part of what we have to rely on is that over time, there will be systemic decarbonization of the economy. I mean, we, you know, we are heading in that direction. And so I don't think it's reasonable to sort of shut down every single activity immediately, because a lot of this stuff will become possible in future. But what I did feel a little bit uncomfortable with was having a very outsized footprint on flying compared to the rest of the population, when really it's a very kind of personal and pleasure-oriented benefit for me. So that just didn't fit quite right with me. So really there, I just sort of tried to set a target to bring myself a little bit more back into the pack of what UK citizens do. Just a, a clarification question. So how much of your carbon uh, budget uh, uh, was made by the flying? Uh, oh, that's a good question. But I think in the few years before I did this, um, I mean, we'd probably done a long haul flight every year, right? So, um, I mean, it was something like a third. I mean, it, that, that sort of order, it was a lot. Uh, now, it's a lot for a lot of people, actually, in Western countries, but I, I wanted to get it down to um, something, or maybe it was a quarter, actually, I think it was a quarter. And I wanted to get it down to something that's more like um, 10, 15%, something like that. It's still quite a lot, because mm -hmm. flying is a very carbon intensive activity. This is just your pleasure flights. It's not related to your work. I looked at differently, actually. Um, so what was what I did do with work? Um, so I excluded my work flights from that system, because actually, the company I worked for then, um, PwC, when I signed this pledge, had its own sort of plans and strategies for decarbonizing its business, which included the impact of, of work flights. And I think it's, I just decided it was sort of too complicated to import, you know, my work footprint into my personal footprint and figure out which bits of it to include and not include. So the way I thought about flying in relation to work, so I, I did board advice at at, at, at PwC and was quite regularly asked to fly around the world to go to for absurdly short visits to go to board meetings um, 
And so what I did on that was simply to, um, whenever I was asked to fly for a meeting, I would ask the client, is it truly necessary for me to fly to this meeting? Can I do it remotely? And in presenting that, I would in a, you know, non-sanctimonious way say, you know, because actually the firm is looking at ways to reduce its carbon footprint. I didn't personalize it. I said PwC is looking at a way to reduce its carbon footprint. So we're just asking, you know, I'm just asking clients whether, you know, every one of these flights is necessary. And that did save actually a few, you know, a couple of long haul flights, actually. I mean, it, it saved a flight to Australia that I was due to make for a meeting and caused the client to say, actually, do you know what? We probably don't need you. We can manage it remotely. So that's how I dealt with the work side of things. And today um, I sort of take the same approach. So I do sometimes fly for work. Um, it's obviously much easier these days where we've all got used to not, you know, to doing mm. stuff remotely. Um, but I do, again, still consider my work footprint as being different from my personal footprint. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. a bit of, there is, I, I completely accept that there's a bit of a, um, you know, cognitive dissonance there. Uh, and I did think about whether I should refuse to fly for work. And there are some people who've done that. And you could argue that I should do that because I'm in a position where I can do that because I'm not working for anybody else. I, I haven't decided to do that um, because I think that there are significant benefits and effectiveness in face-to-face -face interactions. And, you know, I kind of feel as well that I have sort of chosen to devote myself professionally, um, you know, to the area of climate change in some degree. So I'm making a personal contribution to it. And whilst I perfectly respect people who say they refuse to fly for work, um, I also think that it's not entirely necessary to do that while still authentically pushing towards a net zero world, because we can get to net zero while still doing moderate amounts of flying. I mean, we need to cut out excessive amounts of flying, but we can still fly and get to net zero. Yeah. And what I like uh, about this approach is questioning the status quo. Like uh, previously, it was just normal and uh, uh, regular to to, uh, to to take a flight. But then mm. if you're asking, do you really need me? And in so mm. many cases, uh, actually, the answer is no. So mm. uh, you can reduce emissions without really sacrificing anything. Mm. And I think you also just, you know, going again, talking about it kind of counts. And that, you know, because at first mm. I just I was sort of wondered should I say what the motivation was but actually I found it very productive to say what the motivation was um, because then actually that would lead to you know potentially a little bit more kind of relevant reflection from 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 the client so rather than it being oh well Tom can't be bothered to fly here mm -hmm. actually discussing the reason for why you know I think again just creates these little ripples that maybe makes people think a little bit about about these issues and so on and so forth yeah, exactly. Okay, so next step, that was uh, transportation. Yeah, well, I haven't quite finished on transportation, I'm afraid, because there's also cars. Yeah. And so I had, I had, um, I had kind of slated in um, part of my um, carbon reduction as being buying an electric car. Uh, so I currently drive a hybrid. And um, I, for various reasons, I count my electricity supply as being um, being zero carbon. I mean, this is quite kind of a potentially controversial area, but let's just park that for now. But in my sort of estimation of my footprint, that's that that's what I do because um, 
partly because of the solar panels, but also I have probably the greenest UK electricity supplier who is actually putting new generation capacity onto the grid. Uh, and so I think can justifiably claim that, that, that they're a, uh, have the effect of being a zero carbon electricity provider. So that meant that, you know, the whatever it is, one and a half, two tons a year of from from driving, I had slated in as a reduction by moving to an electric car. But this really isn't so simple. All right. So this is one of these examples where you get into kind of um, uh, rebound effects and all of that kind of stuff. So if you are going to buy a new car, there is absolutely no doubt that an electric vehicle is um, lower carbon than a, uh, a petrol vehicle even once you take into account the higher carbon footprint of manufacturing it, right? I think that's really, really clear if you do the life cycle um, analysis, there's a significant saving to be had there. But if you've already got a car, it's much more complicated. So, because if you sell that car, what you can see is that actually you just increase the supply of cars on the road. And so, um, again, being a bit nerdy about this, I actually went back and looked at a lot of the data on this for the UK. And what you can see is a really, really strong correlation between new car sales and numbers of cars on the road. So basically for every new car that's sold, about 0.75 cars are added to the fleet of cars on the road. So someone's going to drive that car and do some miles in it. So actually, it's not as simple as saying I'm switching an electric, a, a, a petrol car for an electric car. You're also increasing the supply of cars on the road if you buy a new car. So unless you actually kind of just crush your old car so that nobody else can use it, um, you've got this kind of problem, you know, and actually once you look at it through that lens, it becomes really marginal, whether it's worth changing an existing car for an electric car. I, I basically couldn't decide whether it was positive or negative. It was about it was about zero. Then you get to a separate argument, which is, OK, but sometimes you need to send market signals. Because that's valuable as well, because we need to demonstrate that there's demand for electric vehicles so that supply ramps up and so that the infrastructure behind them ramps up. And so I had planned to 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 buy an electric vehicle a couple of years ago for that reason. But actually, since we've seen electric vehicle demand take off. Right. And you can't get hold of them now. I mean, it's impossible to get an If I wanted to buy an electric vehicle today, I would take delivery of it at some point in 2024. So. I've actually on that one, I've decided just to park that one because I don't think that me buying an electric car today sends a particularly useful demand signal. The demand's already there. And I think that actually it's probably better for me to, you know, run the existing car, um, trying to drive a little bit less, a little bit slower, a little bit frugally and um, to do that rather than switching to electric. So I will probably now not buy an electric car uh, until my current car kind of falls over in, I don't know, maybe five or six years time. Uh, and that is actually one reduction that therefore will get postponed beyond my original uh, original time frame. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I have noticed that's kind of interesting, um, you know, and it shows you what kind of carbon taxes could do, is that I started driving at um, 65 miles an hour on the motorway. Um, because you get better fuel consumption if you drive at 65 than if you drive at 75 miles an hour on the mm -hmm. motorway. And what's kind of interesting is that when I started doing that uh, a few years ago, I was by far the slowest car on the motorway, right? Everyone would be like charging past me, you know, outside. Now that's not true. And it's quite interesting. And my, my hypothesis is that as petrol prices have gone up, 
I think more people have started driving a little bit slower on the motorway because now I find myself sort of being a little bit more in the flow of the traffic. And so, you know, it, it's, it's just an interesting example how I've actually, you know, price effects do potentially change behavior. But anyway, that's a, that's a sort of a sidetrack. But that's where we are on transportation. But isn't it the regulation? Because I think at least in France, they reduced the uh, maximum speed by something like 10 kilometers per hour for each range. Yeah, not that hasn't happened here. Okay. So in the UK, there has been no reduction in the speed limit. And the uh, uh, economy in terms of the carbon uh, emissions is really significant when you move from uh, a 70... Yeah, I mean, 75 to 65, you get about 10% better fuel consumption. Okay. So it's not it's not massive, but it's not nothing either. So, and what about the second-hand electric car? Yeah, I mean, great option, and I think we might well do that. There, I suppose you could argue that you're not um, you're not adding to supply, and I think indeed, in the coming years, we will find quite good electric second-hand cars coming onto the market. I mean, I think one of the challenges to date with second-hand electric cars has been that the technology has been improving so quickly that second-hand cars are a long way behind the quality of new cars. And actually, availability of second-hand electric cars isn't much better than new ones. So um, I think you make a great point. I think that probably is the way to go. In fact, I mean, I think, you know, when we get to replacing the car, what we're thinking of doing, I mean, we've currently kind of ridiculously got two cars. Um, but what my plan would be is to go to one car. And actually, I did a little bit of analysis, and I reckon that 80% of our miles within 50 mile journeys of the home. So I actually think that a small electric car with a you know, with a small battery, you know, not some massive great thing, um, would serve 80% of our miles. And then for our longer journeys, um, why wouldn't we hire a car, hire a bigger car, right? So the longer journeys we make, you know, taking kids to university, etc., like that, they're predictable, we know when they are, it's not like we've got to immediately jump into the car, we could just hire a car for the next day, do that mm. drive, and use a small electric car for getting around. So that would be my ideal model. And it, it actually sounds very much in, in, in the direction of this shareable economy. Yeah. Right? We don't Cause, well, cause it's a great point because, you know, if you look at this environmentally, you know, is the best thing to do. So yeah, moving from a world where everybody has one or two petrol cars to where everyone has one or two electric cars. Um, yeah, that makes a difference. Um, but actually, how much better it would be if we moved to a world where everyone had 0.1 electric cars, reflecting the fact that it spends 90% of their time sitting on the drive unused, you know. So, you know, I do think that maybe some kind of mixed models might might work. Yeah, and actually we're facing another problem with the electric cars. We can't just replace one-to-one uh, -one all the existing uh, uh, fuel cars because uh, we're running into the problem of the limited uh, rare earth metals, right? Yeah. So, the, so yeah. uh, it's, it's not only about really reducing the carbon emissions, it's really about reconsidering how we consume and how we use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, I think that, that principle applies in quite a number of areas of, of, of climate change in that, you know, one of the challenges is that people don't want their lives to be disrupted. Uh, and actually, those disruptions might take you to a place where life's just better, but because it's different, people don't like it. And so what we tend to do is to say, how can we decarbonize what we currently do, as opposed to saying, well, how can we achieve the same end in a lower carbon way? 
Mm. And, um, you know, actually, if we could sort of start from scratch, you know, if you had a really efficient system where you could get hold of a car within 30 minutes, and that meant that it cost you, you know, a fifth of the amount to use car transport because you didn't have to make this massive capital investment, you know, wouldn't that just be a better way of organising the world? But because we're so used to owning a car and it's part of mm. our identity, you know, actually, we find it very difficult to envisage that that might be a better world. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think there are more fundamental questions to ask around this stuff. Yeah, no, a very uh, good way you, you posed the, this question. But that also made me think when you talked about the cars is uh, now, at least in fashion or whatever, people... Um, tend to sell things, right? So they buy new clothes and then they resell them in vintage or whatever. But then the question is, you still consume. Like you yeah, kind yeah. of may have a better consciousness because you resell it, but yeah. you still produce more and more clothes. So no, you're absolutely right. And I, and I think that however well we do on decarbonization of supply chains and so on and so forth, I'm not sure we're ever going to be able to get away from this idea that, consumption, you know, puts a strain on planetary boundaries, right? Because if it's not, you know, if it's not um, carbon, it's going to be around water usage, or it's going to be around land usage, or, mm. or, 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 uh, or it's going to be about kind of plastic waste. And so, you know, I think, um, I think we are going to need to think about consumption. This is politically a really tough thing. But one of the interesting things that I did was to kind of analyze kind of the different impacts of different types of consumption. And, you know, I, I did a thought experiment of kind of different ways that you can spend a, a 30,000 pound inheritance from a favored aunt that had died and left it to you, you know. And the, the, the difference in carbon impact from, you know, if you compare taking a luxury holiday involving long haul, you know, flights, at, you know, at one extreme to, you know, some amazing long sort of, I don't know, cycling holiday somewhere. I mean, there's a, there's a difference in about a factor 10 or 20 in the carbon impact of these consumption choices. And so I, I think we definitely have moved to trying to think a little bit about how we spend our money. So yes, there's something about lowering consumption, but there's also something about what you spend it on. And in general, if you spend your money on, on quality when you buy things, on experiences and on services, then that's generally going to be much, much better than than buying lots and lots of stuff. I mean, in, you know, in general, mm. it's kind of physical stuff that contains the embedded carbon emissions, plus obviously flying. And so, you know, you can think about, and actually what's kind of great about that, again, this is kind of a little bit of a win-win because all of the research evidence shows that in terms of like sort of personal happiness, you know, experiences and service-based kind of things actually are better for that than stuff. Um, but we are kind of addicted to stuff. Um, and, you know, and politically, that's going to be a really tough nut to crack because, you know, people people hate not being able to buy stuff and you get the immediate sort of dopamine hit from buying stuff. Um, we do need to wean ourselves off that somehow. Yeah. But actually, what, when you think about it uh, historically, it's... A relatively recent period sure. when we've got that, that's uh, so much stuff. It's maybe what 70 years since uh, 1950. That, really, I mean, I think consumer society started in the 1970s, you know, and um, yeah, and, uh, and you know, I, I don't quite know how we put that genie back in the bottle. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I wish I, you know, I wish I did. And the problem is that 
you know, politicians, um, I mean, this is, this is a problem I have with the sort of the degrowth movement around climate, because whilst I sort of have some um, sort of empathy with it, I, I just don't see how that becomes politically saleable. But again, maybe it's just one of these things that, you know, we need to talk about a little bit more, um, you know, and again, I think that this idea about making different consumption choices, uh, that's probably where I'd start it with, actually, is rather than tell, telling people that, oh, they have to just live a much more frugal lifestyle, right, which most people just don't want to hear, you know, saying that actually, you know, different consumption choices actually, you know, are, are better for your own emotional well-being. You know, we all, we, you know, we all know that you get more out of experiences and things. Maybe that's a more fruitful way at least to start the discussion, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And also painting a different future, but a bright future. So instead of yeah. putting guilt and saying, right. okay, you have to cut here and here, let's think about the society, what we will have. There will be yeah. more cooperation, there will be more sharing, there will be more yeah. no quality time, etc. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, I, I think you're very right, that, that creating that positive vision. And, uh, you know, but I think, um, you know, we're not seeing many politicians you know, willing to do that at the moment. Um, but that's where I think, you know, talking about talking about these issues is really, really important so that, you know, it it becomes visible to the political classes that these are things that people are concerned about. Yeah. But do you think that we also should bring it back to the academia, to the universities and to reconsider uh, the way our models work? Because if you think about it, we live just the way our macroeconomic models, our financial models uh, predict and uh, the, the factors they uh, put in. So, and uh, consumption is a big thing in every macroeconomic model that we have now. So how can we really uh, reduce consumption if that's all we know? We, we need to drive this uh, new thinking and maybe creating new models uh, where the, uh, we put new values, we put uh, maybe well, uh, new constraints, right? The, the boundary constraints, mm. the uh, limited resources constraints. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And I, you know, and I think that the... The externalities view in economics um, you know, has, has some limitations, actually, particularly when you get to nature, because it's quite hard to define those boundaries. Uh, I mean, I think economics can, can encompass the carbon externality quite well through social costs of carbon, but, but I think other externalities nest well. And then there's this sort of perennial discussion that I kind of go to and fro on, really, which is around the, the role of consumption uh, and GDP as drivers of sort of economic output and success. And the reason why I have kind of mixed views on that is that on the one hand, it's, it's really obvious that there's much more to life and happiness than consumption and GDP. But on the other hand, you know, GDP is a pretty reliable indicator of countries having the resources to enable them to do things that people do really care about. So I think we need to be a little bit careful about sort of throwing out the idea that GDP and consumption are important because it's sort of easy for us to say that in our privileged lifestyles here in, 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 in the West. So um, I think we both have to, you know, explore ways of getting other more refined measurements uh, and exploring actually other ways that we can articulate human well-being that go beyond consumption. And whilst recognising at the same time I think we have to face into the idea that economic growth 
does matter to people and improves their lives. And the other challenge that we have that I've heard a lot around this sort of economic growth argument is that we are in a bit of a bind in the sense that we are already in the West. So, so, so let, let, let's suppose that we stopped economic growth altogether, right, in, in, in the West. We still need to accept that people in developing nations deserve some economic mm-hmm. growth that genuinely improves their lives. And we'd still be left with the problem of massively decarbonizing what we already do in, in, in the West. So sort of stopping growth kind of doesn't quite get you there. And even degrowth has to be truly dramatic to get you anywhere near something that fits within a carbon budget. And so, and, and then economic growth does create the development resources and technologies that both enable you to solve the problem and also adapt to the things that happen. So I think, I mean, it's, I don't know what the answer to any of this is, other than that it's sort of extremely complicated. And I think that some of the degrowth narrative is a bit simplistic in terms of, um, you know, some of these other other factors and, you know, GDP is kind of important, even though it's not everything. You also worked on the corporate governance and sustainable investing. Mm. So how can we think about this? So should we reconsider our models where the companies care not only about their profits, but also we put some environmental and social variables into the equation? Uh, how this could be achieved? Mm. Yeah, I mean, look, this is a this is a really big question. And I think there are sort of two routes to it. Um, so the first thing to say is that it's perfectly reasonable for society to set expectations on how companies act. Um, I mean, there's this sort of slightly bizarre situation that has arisen, particularly in the US, where the courts have sort of interpreted the Constitution as allowing companies to have personhood and sort of individual rights as though they were individuals. I, I mean, personally, I think that's kind of nonsense. And I think that companies exist, Company, the, the, the company form confers great benefits on on the shareholders in the company through limited liability and so on and so and legal personhood. And I think that, um, therefore, it's perfectly legitimate for society to set expectations about how companies behave. Uh, and that can be through hard laws and soft laws. And, um, and I think there's been a growing movement to try and make more explicit what those stakeholder obligations of companies are. On the flip side of all of that, and, and sorry, and that's to be dis- encouraged, and I, and I think that I'm actually quite um, sympathetic to some of what the EU has been doing around due diligence obligations and so on and so forth, because I think it's quite difficult for boards to have regard to their impacts on stakeholders if they haven't done the work to figure out what those impacts are. On the other hand, I think that the um, that sort of approach of sort of internalizing these broader considerations into company decision making is never going to address a massive externality like carbon. Because the reality is that, you know, I don't see us moving away from a sort of capitalist based system. Uh, and I wouldn't want us to actually, because I think it's conferred great benefits on humanity. And I think it's very easy to wish those benefits away. Um, so I think for me, the task is how to make the capitalist system work better. And the capitalist system will always be problematic when profitable activities are damaging. Uh, and that is the kind of the classic thing around externalities. And so I think we've got to get, we've just got to be much bolder as a society to take back control of what it is that corporations do through 
proper regulation. And um, I know it's a very sort of traditional response, but you know, a combination of real and implied carbon pricing through regulation is, is the route through this. And I think we've seen a transformation, for example, in UK energy systems and energy provision because of government regulation around contracts for difference and renewable energy supply. So, you know, I have to say that's where my head goes in terms of what we want to do. However, we do have a problem, which is that certain political systems, most political systems, but, you know, particularly in the US, are very captured by monetary vested interests. And we've got to find a way as a society to get the courage to you know, to take those on and, and, and address them. And my fear is that it's kind of not until we get to a point of crisis that we do that. But to be optimistic on it, I think that one of the things I'm seeing, certainly in relation to whether we can hold global warming to two degrees, I mean, 1.5 degrees is sadly behind us probably, but there are some key kind of technology shifts and tipping points and economic tipping points that I think will start to get momentum behind more sustainable solutions, particularly around energy provision. Although I do agree with something you said earlier, which is that this does still leave the elephant in the room of probably excessive consumption, uh, because however much you decarbonise the supply chain, excessive consumption will be excessive consumption. Uh, and I'm afraid I just don't quite know what the answer to that is. Yeah, so I think it's sometimes it's when good not to have this hope in the technology and rather address the uh, uh, current uh, societal problems rather than just hope we will get there uh, by some miracle. I, I agree with that. I mean, there has to be a mixture of the two. You know, how does culture change happen in, you know, in societies? I mean, I guess it does change, right? You know, attitudes, attitudes do change. I mean, we used not to be consumerist, now we are. Uh, we used to object to gay marriage, now we don't. Um, you know, so, I mean, cultures and attitudes change on quite significant issues in unpredictable ways. And, and therefore, I think, even if we don't have the answers, I think it's really important to, to, you know, to talk about this stuff. And so, you know, if I look at the degrowth movement, for example, you know, even though I currently view it as sort of impractical and politically unsellable, I'm really pleased that people are talking about it because I could be completely wrong, right? And rich stuff could come out of those conversations. And the very fact that those conversations are happening starts to make people think slightly differently. And actually, you know, you could imagine, you could imagine regulation emerging against fast, fast fashion that grew out of, you know, cultural changes in attitudes to consumption. So I think these conversations are really important, even if we don't quite know where they're going. We're under pressure of the carbon budget uh, being used uh, within 10 years. And so we want the change immediately. And we kind of try to think, okay, how can we change the society right away? But I think, well, after 10 years, the life hopefully won't stop. And we also have to think in, about the more longer term solutions. And this, I think for this, we more or less know the, the answers. The society can change. The, uh, we see the uh, traditions being changed. And we probably just have to invest more in our children, right, in the education so that they grow with the more uh, environmental identity, with the caring more about the nature, uh, mm -hmm. with the, uh, all the <laughs> to reduce all the vices we have currently as a uh, mm -hmm. consumerism society. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and, and I'd also, you know, I think that there are ways in which you can 
develop kids more than we do to you know kind of challenge the norm of consumerism think about their own personal development what actually creates life satisfaction and obviously we have a responsibility to do that as parents but you know there's a lot of stuff that you know that comes at kids that create this you know that reinforce this sort of consumerist mindset that they they view as normal um you know and i think that my kids have faced that more than i faced it growing up in the, mm. in, in in the 70s and um and early 80s so um yeah, I, th I think I think that's actually a very good point that you make. That part of what we need to think about in relation to long-term sustainability is the is the investment that we're making in 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 our children's attitudes and and norms and values. I, th I think that's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, and also like actually, uh, we'll repeat this question because you're also uh, uh, academic, right? So like you in the London Business School mm. and. If we want a longer term solution, I do think that we have also to rethink our models because yeah. that's the models which frame our thinking. And it's probably it was useful whatever 50, 70 years uh, ago when they were built, but they're not any more satisfactory. And it's not the only way how we can live. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that. I mean, so I, I think there's a couple of aspects. I mean, business schools, I think, are trying to catch up with this sustainability agenda and teach it in different ways. And I think I'd say that it's moved from um, having courses on sustainability to starting to try to embed sustainability in the way that that work is typically done. I think when you look at economic and financial models um, of the world, I think one of the challenges is that, I mean, there's, you know, there's a couple of ways that you can approach this. One is that you can look to adapt those models to reflect reality. So, you know, there's, there's no reason why economic models can't reflect preferences other than consumption and why they can't reflect externalities that imposed on society. They're perfectly capable of doing that. Sometimes it's not very easy to do. And I think the problem with sort of this call for alternative models is that there's not a whole bunch of alternative models that explain the world better that are already out there. Now, maybe it needs to be, maybe the first phase in this is a more explicit articulation as kind of some of the problems and challenges around models as they stand, some of the weaknesses around simplifying assumptions that are made, key variables that are omitted. And maybe, therefore, the first step is just acknowledging some of the weaknesses and uncertainties. But I don't think at the moment we have a sort of a replacement rubric to, you know, to put in to put in place. I totally agree with what you say. It's uh, rather it's not because we don't have yet the solution. <laughs> we shouldn't think about it. And that's what you just said about the degrowth. Uh, this uh, discussion should be uh, ongoing and yeah. uh, all the solutions uh, uh, should be considered and uh, debated and uh, yeah. as a society we have a, a lot of potential to come up with the right solution for this well, and also i think that if you put it into a business school context the mere process of discussing and debating some of these issues creates a different mindset in people and you know then maybe they go out into the world thinking okay these are the best models we've got at the moment as opposed to these are great and perfect models you know because if you have the first attitude, these are the best models we've got at the moment, but actually there could be something better coming along, then, you know, at least you're a little bit more open-minded about it. Mm. Again, about the companies. So, because uh, once, well, we still have to consume, right? And so when consuming, uh, we have to 
be careful uh, and pay attention to uh, from which companies we buy. And so to, to make sure that the, the companies do the uh, necessary uh, actions to reduce carbon emissions, to take more care about the environment while reducing, etc. So what sources do you trust and uh, how do you assess companies' commitments and how you choose companies from which you would buy? I think this is really, really difficult and I haven't found a good answer to it. I'm afraid. Um, and um, I mean, in the end, yeah, I mean, you know, there are various sort of, um, you know, ethical purchasing websites. Um, the problem I have is that it's very difficult reliably to find out what a company is really doing and what its impacts really are. And the more I go through life, you know, the more I'm aware of some of the potential sort of unintended consequences of supposed disclosures around good corporate behaviour. Um, I mean, you know, just to give one example, I mean, the um, there's a recent paper that's come out that shows that companies that sign up to science-based targets around carbon emissions are massively more likely to use renewable energy certificates to count as electricity scope two offsets to meet those targets whereas we all know really that renewable energy certificates don't do anything for supply of renewable energy and they don't do anything to cut carbon emissions really so you know it's very very difficult for the consumer to pick underneath all of this stuff and I'm afraid in the end I slightly sort of um, thrown my hands in the air on this one and I've tried to focus more on the nature and level of my consumption as opposed to where I get it from. Because I think that if I decide to, um, you know, to go back to my um, aunt's, aunt's inheritance example, you know, mm -hmm. if I decide to spend the £30,000 on a painting as opposed to a car, right, then that's a big difference in carbon footprint and so I think the choice is about moving to experiences and you know and quality as opposed to just loads and loads of stuff is a first order impact I think on your carbon footprint I think it's very very difficult to, to choose kind of ethical suppliers I mean I think you can you know you can look at these you can look at these sort of assessments that various external bodies make of, of, of companies you can kind of form an impression and I sort of have formed an impression Certainly in food, there are certainly fairly reliable marks, I think, around sustainable food production, sustainable fish production that I think you can get hold of. So as an example, I always buy my fish from Marks and Spencers because I think they're pretty good at sustainable fish production. But it's such a blizzard. And as a consumer, you can really easily get overwhelmed. So I, I, I'm sorry, this is an unsatisfactory answer, but I, I've, I've just sort of a little bit decided life's too short on some of that stuff because it's so difficult to plow through all the greenwashing. And you mentioned the offsetting. So yeah. maybe we can now discuss this. Yeah, great. Yeah, no, I'm actually in this at the moment. Um, so I used to offset my emissions. So I used to estimate the carbon footprint, and then I would buy four times the number of carbon credits to allow for the fact that some of the, option, off, the, the, some of the offsets might be a bit rubbish. Um, and used to use a mixture of sort of classical kind of gold standard offsetting projects. I used to try and buy and retire 
carbon credits and a European emissions trading system. I supported the Woodland Trust and so on and so forth. I have sort of rather turned against the idea of offsetting. Um, and um, I've not turned against the idea of funding those projects, but I have turned against the idea of offsetting because I think the reality is the more I've looked into it, and I think this is a big problem with corporate uh, level offsets as well, it's very difficult to, to know whether offsetting's working and there's a massive amount of evidence that actually in many cases it doesn't. Um, so it's very difficult to prove that an offset is additional to carbon reductions that would have happened anyway. It's very difficult to assess whether it's permanent. Um, you get a lot of um, you know, rebound effects so, you know, an example of a rebound effect would be, you know, if you create a kind of cleaner, uh, cheaper cooking method for people in developing countries, then they use it more. So you don't get the full saving, mm. right? You know, mm. um, and you also get, you know, just kind of leakage. So activity that you stop in one place springs up somewhere else. So. I think the idea that we can undertake an activity that reduces a ton of carbon that would otherwise have been emitted is is actually mis misguided unless you go for the like, massively high quality offsets like carbon removal and turning it into rock and burying it in the ground, which costs about 900 euros a ton. And I think the problem with offsetting in that way is that it creates a, a it, it kind of creates a social license to pollute. And I think we're very good at kidding ourselves that we're doing the right thing. And so I could say, do you know what? I'm going to fly as much as I like, but I'm going to buy some offsets that the airline offers, which costs $5 a ton, totally unrealistically low. And, you know, therefore I'm okay. Right. But we know these offsets are crap, really. And probably anything under, you know, anything that's costing you $10 a ton. To, to offset. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Mm -hmm. So the way I think about it now is 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 um, self taxation. So um, I impose on myself a hundred pounds a ton carbon tax based on our family's footprint, and I do then put that to some of these projects that I think help with biodiversity and and, and carbon mm -hmm. reduction. But what I'm not doing anymore is pretending that I'm offsetting my carbon impact. I'm not right but i am mitigating it and i'm mitigating it in a way that i think is consistent with what a sensible government policy would be because i think right now we should be having carbon taxes roughly at about a hundred dollars a ton so that's my sort of you know and, and i'm still kind of looking at the same sort of stuff you know to, to to invest in the one exception to that which i am considering because it's sort of overcoming this dilemma i have around flying and keeping the family together and all of that kind of stuff, <laughs> keeping them on side. I am thinking of if I go above my budget of one tonne per annum, doing hard offsets for the excess, by which I mean um, climb works, carbon removal and burying it in rock, which is 900 euros a tonne. And interestingly, what that does, if you apply that to flying, it basically means that you fly economy for the cost of a business class ticket. That's kind of what it turns it into if you apply 900 euros a ton to, um, to flying. 
And so that's the one area where I am sort of a little bit taking more of an offset mindset, which is to say, if I am going to be so weak as to continue flying, then I really do need to try and take that on the chin in some quite meaningful way. So anyway, that, I, I haven't decided that yet, by the way. This is late breaking news because um, I've just been, been, been looking at this. The other thing I'm looking at as well, in rather than offsetting, again, in terms of this sort of um, applying a self-carbon tax to good causes, I am also now looking and researching activist organisations because I think there's been some quite interesting research that's come out that actually the the return to activism is is actually very high, um, and there's a lot of underfunded activist organisations. Now the other problem is there's like millions of them, so it's difficult to figure out which one mm. to contribute to. But I am going to put a portion of my self taxation towards funding activist organisations that campaign for policy change on climate and um, and nature. You know, if the if the emissions of our family in a year are sixty tons, that's six thousand pounds tax that so so it's a hundred pounds for every single time so the only area where i'm looking at the excess is is for flying because i think flying is so 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 i guess what i feel overall is that you know offsetting isn't really offsetting unless you do very very high quality carbon removal offsetting uh, that's the only way that you can be sure it's additional permanent blah de, blah de, blah but that's incredibly expensive so I'm sorry, but I'm not going to offset everything that way because it would just, I mean, I couldn't afford it. I mean, it would be impossible. And also, I think we need to accept that we don't have to be at zero now. The economy is on a, you know, on a decarbonisation yeah. pathway. I do think that flying is particularly problematic from a moral point of view because the impact of it is just so high. And if I am going above what is normal for someone in society, you know, I do feel that I I need to take a more stringent standard on that one. So it's for flying only. I am considering whether if I go above my flying budget, I should be doing hard offsets to really make me think about that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what is that you have learned over this experience? Wow, gosh, I mean, I've learned loads. <laughs> I mean, what I've learned, um, so communicating about it is absolutely great. And um, I, so I, I do think that that's really important. And um, that's got me involved in lots of wonderful conversations and this one being an example um, of that. You know, but also it's created some really small um, wins. So, um, you know, through having published some of this stuff, particularly around a heat pump installation that I'm doing, um, you know, my local MP picked up on that story, asked a couple of parliamentary questions about it. They've made no difference. She got a brush off answer from the minister. But you know what? I mean, these are just the little sort of seeds of change that we can plant. So I've become really persuaded by this argument that it's really important to, you know, to talk about it. And um, uh, someone I follow quite a lot, like Mark, uh, a guy called Mark Trexler, um, you know, he says probably the single most important thing you can do around climate change is to talk about it. The second thing that I've really learned is that actually, do you know, there are some changes that you can make that have no negative impacts on your lifestyle. So we might as well, might as well kind of change them if you're inclined to do so. Um, and, you know, and diet is the obvious one um, there, but also I think consumption patterns, what you spend your money on, not just what you spend, but what you spend it on 
is, is, is a big one. And then I think the third thing I've learned is that some of this stuff is much more complicated than I thought it was when I first went into it. And there are certain sort of rebound effects and inefficiencies and second order impacts that make it much less obvious. And I think the things that for me would fall into that category are um, electric cars, um, carbon offsetting, and actually also something we haven't talked about, but sustainable investing, which I initially kind of pinned great hopes on, but I've now become enormously cynical about. Um, so, you know, I've learned, I've learned a huge amount about what's, you know, what's easy and what's not easy. In terms of the overall goal, where am I going to get to? I suspect I'm not going to get to 50%, if I'm perfectly honest. I think I'm going to fall short. And I think the main reason that I'm going to fall short is that I think that our base level of consumption is just too high to, to, to hit the goal. Um, and, you know, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I think we'll make progress on a lot of the things like, you know, diet, energy, travel, transport. But, you know, do we just consume too much? Yeah, we probably do. Uh, and I'm not sure that we're going to get to 50%. But we will be above a third. So we'll see. Yeah, better than maybe. nothing. <laughs> well, certainly much better than many other people. <laughs> well, I mean, I have to say, I really don't want to claim any any kind of moral credit for this, because I suppose the other thing, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I've made any great sacrifices through doing this. Um, some some a few little personal sacrifices but you know i'm in a very fortunate position where i can afford to do some of this stuff you know to re you know to reduce my footprint and so it's been really interesting but you know i really don't want this conversation to give any impression that you know i've done anything particularly great because I, I don't you know i don't i don't I don't imply any moral superiority through all of this sort of thing, because in effect, I've used spare resources to do something that I'm interested in, you know, so for people, you know, for people who are more constrained, I think these choices are genuinely, you know, really, really difficult. And, um, you know, I wouldn't really want to point fingers at anybody who's grappling with this stuff. Yeah, well, actually, uh, I meant not really people who are constrained with this, I totally agree. But it's not also people who are constrained who contribute the most. It's yeah, that's people. true. <laughs> I mean, and, and actually, I mean, that is something that does come out when you look when you start looking at this stuff. The inequity of, of the contribution, you know, is really enormous. And um, within countries, you know, so 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 people who are in the you know in the top one percent of our our income distribution. I can't remember exactly what it is, but you know, contribute something like 30% of carbon emissions. Mm. Um, and most of that uh, is from, a big chunk of that is from flying. I mean, actually, mm -hmm. you know, people who use their wealth to fly all over the place, you know, are contributing a massive amount to the problem. There's no doubt about that. And I'd be very in favour, actually, of some um, sort of cumulative um, uh, flight tax. I would be very much in favour of that. Yeah, and actually, uh, I, I was curious. So you're also on boards, uh, on different governance boards. And I think one way of looking how the company is serious about the, the climate issues is to see how the management is serious about uh, their own contributions and if they are ready to make these uh, small mm. sacrifices. Do you see other people in your circle with the same financial conditions uh, doing something similar or maybe following your steps? So, I mean, gosh, it's hugely variable. 
I would say is hugely variable. I think quite a lot of people um, I come across are thinking about this stuff, but I should say that I work in, do a lot of work in the areas of sustainable investing and so on and so forth. So I'm, I'm sort of seeing a group of people who are very attuned to this sort of stuff. I would say when I come across people who are um, less involved in that sort of work, you, you tend to see much less action taken, um, you know, because it's, it's partly an awareness thing. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at things in aggregate, where there clearly aren't that many people taking significant action because emissions continue to go up, flying continues to grow, blah, 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 blah. Mm. But, okay. you know, the flip side is that people are very interested. So the positive thing I'd say is that when you, most people are engaged in conversation on this stuff, are interested. Um, sometimes it makes them think. Um, I had dinner last night with somebody actually. He said that as a result of my blog, they'd inquired about um, having a heat pump installed as part of a redevelopment they were doing in their home. You know, and I thought, okay, that's nice. You know, that's just a mm. that's a small little little ripple. So again, the more we talk about this stuff, the more we raise raise awareness. But I I, I still think we're in the foothills of this because as the polling evidence shows. Most people don't understand actually what the what the main contributors are to climate change and how they live their lives. You know, mm -hmm. They've got it about flying probably, but most people don't understand beyond that. Okay, so really the best thing uh, to contribute to the fighting of climate change is really to talk about it and to say what are the main contributors and mm. what are the easy steps to to make. Yeah, and what are you doing? You know, and actually because people. People respond, you know, and, and this is why I've always tried to do it as much as possible in a sort of non-sanctimonious way, right? Because no one wants a sort of holier-than-thou view on what you should be doing around mm. your lifestyle. It's incredibly off-putting. And so, you know, I, but, but I think what is helpful is if you talk about stuff you've done and you're obviously still living a life that those people recognise as a sort of life that they want to live, then I think that's just kind of helpful and causes people to think about stuff. And what is about sustainable investment? You you mentioned it, and so and you said yeah. you're quite uh, <laughs> disappointed with it. I think the yeah, I am. I mean, I think there are a lot of claims made for sustainable investing, um, but the unfortunate sort of reality around sustainable investing is that um, it's very difficult for investors to really make a meaningful impact on what companies do through the way they invest. It's a little bit like pushing on a piece of string. Um, what companies do is very much driven by the profit signals that they respond to and what, what, what is profitable in the economic system that we have. And at the moment, because carbon isn't priced in any meaningful way or regulated in any meaningful way, it's you know far too profitable to undertake carbon intensive activities and it doesn't matter what your investment strategy is it's not going to change that and um, a lot of the way that we as individuals invest is in secondary markets right we, we invest in equities and bonds that are already traded on markets so we can sell those investments but all it means is that somebody else buys them we're not actually changing anything in the real world that's happening in the company Yes, we can encourage the investment managers that we use to engage with those companies and get them to go on to a decarbonisation path. 
But what tends to happen is that a lot of those decarbonisation paths are fulfilled by those companies getting rid of dirty activities and selling them to private markets or state-owned actors where the activity still happens. So when you look at the research evidence on this, what you find is that these sustainable investing approaches that are commonly available to retail investors like you and me are um, actually having very little impact on real-world carbon emissions. And if anything, are just shifting activity around kind of sectors of the economic ecosystem. So I'm afraid very sceptical about the extent to which, on the whole, sustainable investment strategies lead to real-world change in, in, in carbon emissions. They do provide some signalling benefit. I think if investors show that they care about this stuff, then that makes it easier for governments to act. Again, there's this whole kind of signalling dance between the private and public sectors. Um, but, but, but overall, I, I think it's a mistake for people to incur huge personal costs in terms of investment returns in pursuit of some of these sustainable investment activities because I, I don't think they make that much difference. Okay, so, but do you have any solution yourself? <laughs> like, what do you do yourself? Yeah, I mean, so I'll tell you what I do. I mean, so I do invest, um, so I invest, invest in a fairly um, traditional way, um, diversified um, investments, predominantly index-based. I do invest in the sustainable versions of those funds, which have different engagement policies with companies, because I think that when you look at the academic evidence, engagement does make a difference, but it's a bit at the margin. I think that's what we've got to recognise. And um, so the sustainable funds have engagement policies that take more account of issues like, like climate. Um, I think what I would caution people ag against is getting sucked into strategies that expose themselves to a lot of costs and risks. You know, so for example, right, if we look at, um, you know, renewable energy funds, for example, right, you might think that it's a great thing to invest in renewable energy funds to make capital available to renewable energy companies. Now, the problem with that is that you can get over-concentrated in your investment strategy. We probably have a renewable energy bubble to some degree now in terms of asset prices, or probably less now, but we did a year ago. It's now kind of popped a little bit. And actually, where investment flows really make a difference is in early stage investments, where people are trying to get venture capital investing to get new technologies off the ground, or in really complicated blended finance type situations where you're trying to get capital to hard to reach projects in the developing world. That's just not suitable for most retail investors. They generally can't access it. So the products that are available to retail investors have much, much lower impact. And quite a lot of them are, you know, arguably subject to quite serious greenwashing claims. So I have personally decided that it's not the area where I'm going to devote most of my activity or focus, because I don't actually think, uh, I, I started off this journey thinking I can have a big impact through how I invest my portfolio. I've now decided that's probably not true because I'm not about to shift my whole portfolio into venture finance in emerging technologies, because that's personally far too risky for me. So I'm gonna focus on other forms of, of contribution. And actually I think that making a, a, a decent contribution to citizenship um, you know, work is, is, is probably better than trying to do too much through your investments. That, that, that's the view I've come to, having worked in this area professionally now. Mm -hmm. Well, but still it's better to invest in the uh, assets which at least are concerned 
and take uh, climate risks seriously. Right, so like uh, less investment in the fossil fuels, right? A little bit more tilting to the renewable energy, etc. Yeah, maybe. I mean, that's that's what my fund does. Uh, I, I have to say, I'm still a little bit sceptical about whether it makes a lot of difference to how much fossil fuels are consumed and produced there, because you know most fossil fuel assets aren't owned by listed companies uh, in the first place. Um, there are plenty of fossil fuels around the world to meet likely demand over the next 30 years, even if we exclude those listed companies. I think there's something to be said for the fact that, you know, listed companies subject to engagement can perhaps show a different path to profitability. I, I, I don't know. So I kind of do it without being entirely convinced about the impact that it's having. I, I, I suppose that's my point. I think the real world impacts of some of these things the real world impacts of having less of your equity investments in fossil fuels, you know, pretty limited because there are plenty of people that are going to buy them up, if not in the listed sector, in the private sector. And what about signalling? Yeah, that, I think signalling, that's probably the primary role that sustainable investment plays, is signalling that it's something that you care about. Um, and actually, you know, some of these strategies that involve tilting a bit away from fossil fuels aren't terribly risky or costly to you as, a, as an investor. Um, you know, but I wouldn't want people to be paying a lot more for one of those strategies, because I think there might be better ways that they can they can use their money. I mean, I, I, I think the investment industry is inherently a reactive, not proactive industry. The investment industry responds to economic signals. It doesn't define the economic signals. And I just think we need to be a little bit realistic about that. Um, and I think there's been some quite misleading stuff put out by certain kind of green investing organizations that have somehow suggested that through changing your through changing the carbon footprint of your investments that's equivalent to a carbon reduction in your your own footprint and and it just isn't right it just isn't it's just shifting the deck chairs around on the titanic you know and so uh i i i think um you know the action is really in consumer behavior and in and in policy, um, and I think until we address those, the supply of fossil fuels will always be there. Right, the world will supply as much fossil fuel as people want to want to consume, and changing how we invest doesn't really change that. And the last question, I really like asking uh, every guest. So, what are your two most inspiring books? I really, really enjoy Mike um, Berners Lee's books. Um, and he uh, has written a book called um, How Bad Are Bananas, where he looks at like the carbon impact of kind of everything that is there in the world that, um, uh, you know, different forms of consumption and, you know, lifestyle impacts. So I found that, you know, a really useful and inspiring um, book. And... Um, What's another one I say that I found very inspiring? I mean, this is sort of a little bit, um, a little bit more dull, um, but has sort of inspired my thinking a lot, even though it's not like a great motivational read. And it's a book called Making Climate Policy Work. It's by Danny Cullenward and David Victor. And it's a very kind of practical book about how policy can contribute to addressing climate change. And it argues against sort of theoretically perfect, but 
politically unimplementable policies like um, carbon taxes, right, which any, every economist will tell you we need a carbon tax, but anyone who tries to introduce it gets voted out of office. But there are actually, it goes through some of the very practical kind of industry by industry policy steps that can actually make a really material um, difference to actually the progress we make on this. And it, it makes me, both Mike's books and this book on making climate policy work, give me optimism because although they demonstrate how bad the problem is, they also demonstrate it, that there are pathways to, you know, to addressing it. And, and I think we have to keep that sense of optimism and agency about what we're doing, because the worst thing in the world is to have people throw their hands up and say, oh, well, it's all too hard. It isn't too hard. We have the capability to solve these problems if we put our minds to it. That was uh, very, very uh, interesting, inspiring, and uh, with a lot of practical uh, suggestions and I think steps that everyone can take. So, no, thanks very much. It's been a lot of fun to talk to you. And uh, well, I wish you all the best with the continuation of the of your way. And well, who knows? Maybe we can talk again in a year. <laughs> and yeah, see and you how, be yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks um, very much. Thank you. Bye bye. Tom has provided a lot of interesting material and food for thought on how we individually can reduce our own carbon footprint. Two most important messages are first, choose your battle. Make changes where the effect will be the largest. Second, talk about climate change and talk about your actions. Despite being aware of climate change, most people still don't know where to start. The two battles where you can start right away are diet and flying. Our diet can contribute up to one-fourth of our total carbon emissions. And changing it by reducing consumption of meat, and particularly red meat, can be an easy win. Flying less, both for leisure and for business, can be another easy win, as it can be the biggest contributor to carbon emissions. Lastly. Carbon offsetting is not a solution, so don't get tricked to think that emissions can be easily offset. For those who would like to know more, Dom has a very interesting blog where he describes his journey in great detail, so feel free to visit it. I put the link in the description. Thank you all for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode and may consider some of the steps that we discussed. Stay tuned for new episodes. Bye-bye.